The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right, everybody, welcome to uh, this month's edition of Untangling Transportation. Uh, my name is Ron Brooks. I'm founder and CEO of Accessible Avenue, and I want to thank you for joining us, whether you are joined on in Zoom or you are on ACB Media or out in Clubhouse. Thank you so much for being here. I would like to start by acknowledging uh, our ACB host, um, Sheila, thank you so much for, for your effort, Sheila Young, to support us. And Herbie Allen is doing lots of uh, different things. He is streaming, he is hosting in Clubhouse, um, and he is uh, keeping us uh, on the air here at Zoom. So thank you both of you uh, for um, being here to assist us. And uh, I am coming to you live from Arlington, Virginia. I, and I just wanna give a shout out uh, to the American Foundation of the Blind. Uh, this is the uh, leadership conference for 2023. Uh, it's my first time here um, and I uh, had the opportunity to be at the Helen Keller uh, Awards um, uh, reception this evening. It's a very nice event and it's very nice to be out here on the East Coast um, and really getting an opportunity to uh, interact with a lot of people who are doing some really great advocacy work uh, around the country in all sorts of different areas uh, for the blind and low vision community. So, so props to AFB uh, and everybody who's out here. So we're gathered tonight to talk about a topic that we talked about what I'm going to call a positive message last month around advocacy at the community level. We had Anthony Corona. We talked about the, you know, the magic that can happen when a community comes together to do advocacy. And we've got a little bit of background um, on, the, on the line there. So tonight I called this, show me some down and dirty advocacy. And I picked show me uh, because we're gonna talk about a place in the show me state and uh, being Missouri. And I picked down and dirty advocacy because sometimes advocacy work is, is it's, not, um, it's not easy. And it wasn't easy in Miami, which is what we featured last week, but sometimes it's downright hard. And we're gonna talk about the hard work of advocacy and what that looks like when things are not going the way they, they should go and when it's hard. Because at the end of the day, all of us, whether we live in big cities or small towns, if you're working on transportation advocacy, you probably had times when it was not the way you wanted it to go. Maybe those are like a lot of the times. And so we, we are going to talk about that uh, tonight. We're gonna to talk about, very, this is a very tactical conversation about how to take a challenge where the odds are really stacked against you and how to do whatever it takes to try to win. And sometimes you don't, and there's lessons to be learned in success and there's lessons to be learned in success, but not yet. And we're going to talk about success, but not yet. And I'm not going to call it failure because I know that the people in, our, in the city we're going to talk about, they're not done yet. And there's more to this story. So this is a work in progress. So here's the format. 
I'm going to bring on our guest in just a minute. We're going to have a conversation about her experience and the experience of her local community. And then we're going to open it up and we're going to invite folks to come in and share some of your own stories from your communities, uh, things that have worked well, maybe areas where you've faced some challenges. Uh, and we're going to try to learn from each other so that we can all become more effective advocates at home with the transportation challenges that we face uh, in our communities. So here's what I'd like to ask. Um, I'd like to ask everybody to stay on mute. And I think Sheila's going to take care of that for me anyway. But but the time to talk will be in a little bit. After we have our interview, we'll open this up and we'll invite people to, to uh, raise their hands and unmute themselves and, and you know, participate in our conversation. But first, I would like to uh, welcome my friend Robin Wallen to the virtual stage here at Untangling Transportation. Hello, Robin. Hey, Ron. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. And I just want to tell you before we turn this over, I met Robin, I don't know, maybe it's been like four or five years ago, maybe a little bit more. In fact, I know it was a little bit before because it was right before we had a convention in St. Louis back in about 2019, I think it was, or maybe 2018. And yeah, before that, actually, probably about eight or nine years ago. Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> it doesn't seem like it be that long. But Robin, <laughs> I met Robin because she was moderating a brand new list on Facebook, or a Facebook community or a group or whatever, um, focused on people who are blind using services like Uber and Lyft. And that's always been something of interest to me. I worked with those companies as a transit professional contracting with these, these companies. And they, you know, they certainly offered some challenges and they still do. But Robin had a list on Facebook that had, at that point, a couple of hundred folks. And we've had Robin on before to talk about that group, I think. And uh, so I had met her and I was really impressed with her work both because of her dedication to the work, but also her honesty and her directness in, in really speaking out to say, there's two sides to every story. You know, transportation isn't just about what the companies ought to do, but it's also about how we as people who use these services have to show up and, and sometimes how we have to raise issues and really challenge the status quo and and, and be assertive on, on behalf of ourselves. And I met Robin in person in St. Louis at our national convention, whatever year that was. And uh, I've, I've loved working with her ever since. And we were talking about, I'm gonna say six weeks ago, maybe, set, maybe yeah, about six weeks ago, I guess, about some changes that were coming to the area where Robin lives with the transit agency there. And they weren't good changes. They were, they were bad changes. So we'll get into that in just a second. But the thing that blew my mind was we had a conversation about, you know, how, you know what does this mean and what do I do? And, and Robin has spent the last you know, six weeks or so working with other people in her community to really try to impact the future direction of transportation. And I'd say it's been a mixed victory. There it's, there's been some, it hasn't gone super well, but it hasn't, but she's made an impact. 
and, and it probably is going to go better in the future because of the work that she's done. And I wanted to bring you on, Robin, to talk about that story. So thank you for being here. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So before we dive into the details of St. Louis, uh, share just a little bit about your involvement with ACB, with the Missouri Council, and how you got involved in this wacky world of transportation. Okay, well, let's see. I've been in ACB and an MCB since probably the mid-90s. And the way I honestly got involved in the wacky world of transportation was because, honestly, I had been working at the Lighthouse for the Blind here, and I wanted to do something different. And I went out and I got my dream job, which was working for TWA Airlines. And what I kind of didn't realize at the time was that I thought their office was still out near my house. It turned out it wasn't. It was now in downtown St. Louis and I lived out in the suburbs. And I started having problems getting to work. And basically what happened was, even though I was in the service area, of paratransit and fixed route buses were really complicated to get downtown and they didn't always run the right way. So that was almost a no, there was no way that was going to work. Anyway, so I had contacted Colorado and I was told that they didn't take trips as long as my trip, which was 19 miles, which I will tell you, caused a lot of problems. And I got really frustrated. I was trying to figure out what to do. And to make a long story as short as I possibly can, I ended up filing an FTA complaint. And what I learned is I learned a lot about FTA regulations. And at one point, we actually had someone from FTA come out to our United Workers of the Blind meeting, which is a um, affiliate of the Missouri Council, and talk to us and tell us what the regulations were. So I ended up educating myself. And I will tell you, the sad part of the story is that the best I ever did for transportation was kind of a compromise. And it was a very, very bad situation where I would have to use a bus a van, a Metrolink train. Um, I actually had situations where when I went to the Metrolink station where I would get a collar ride to go back to my apartment that I would get left because unfortunately at the time they were running small vans for like community buses look just like collar ride vans. And the drivers wouldn't look for me. And I literally got stuck there one time and had to be very resourceful to get a ride home because they were refusing me. And um, I guess sometimes I'm a little, uh, a lot stronger than I think I am because I literally ended up talking to the CEO of the transportation of Metro Transit at the time. And I said, look, Colorado's refusing to give me a ride. I had to call in as, and I wouldn't recommend this, but I said it was a personal call. And I kept him on the phone with me until I got a van because I had no money to get home that particular day. 
And anyway, with all of the problems, um, that's when the FTA complaint was going on. I had a lot of retaliation. I was literally taken to a house I hadn't lived in in two years. I was no-showed for trips I didn't have. I had some really bad experiences. So what I learned from all of that was that I was going to educate myself. So I literally ordered all the, I had all of the regulations, the big book of regulations sent to me, and I read the whole thing because I'm crazy. But the sad part of the story is that particular job I ended up leaving because it was too much of a hassle. It never worked out the way it was supposed to work out. I was very lucky that I was able to find a job closer to home, but that's really where I started trying to advocate for people to have better transportation. And that's a very short version. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like quite a story and, um, and I can totally picture you you getting, you know, a a manager, a CEO online and just saying, you got, you know, you you can't hang up. And, um, um, so, so let's talk about now. So, so talk a little bit about the situation. A lot of transit agencies, and I don't think Colorado is any different, which is the local paratransit in St. Louis. Uh, but even the public transit, a, a lot of systems during the pandemic, of course, uh, lost. Uh, not only did they cut service because nobody was traveling. I mean, we were all staying home. Um, except for first responders and and other people that had to be at work. Most people stayed home. And so a lot of transit services really got diminished. A lot of employees left the workforce and agencies began to have some challenges. So talk about the challenges um, that your community has faced over the years, because I think in St. Louis it got worse, but I think you all had challenges before that. So maybe you could just talk about a little bit about what you know, you, you alluded to your own personal situation, but it sounds like it wasn't just you. What was happening around transportation you know, in the St. Louis area that, that people were talking about maybe just before all everything started this past month? Okay, well, to be honest with you, this has been an ongoing problem for a lot of years. Back in 2008 was the first time I almost lost transportation because they cut service, and that was during the recession. And we got it back just because we happened to be right at the three fourths of a mile marker Mm -hmm. from the last bus stop. But um, a lot of people did lose their transportation. Then the other issue is that St. Louis is a very car centric city and St. Louis is kind of hard to explain because you have the city and the County and they operate as two separate entities. St. Louis city is not part of St. Louis County. St. Louis County is a county unto itself. St. Louis City is there, and basically they control a lot of the transit, um, and it makes it interesting. But because we are so spread out, and because we have so many municipalities, there is a lot of problems with transit here. And over the years, they have cut service, and since the pandemic, it's gotten worse. And one of our real fears right now with what was going on is that in the past two years, every six months, they're cutting more bus routes. And now that they have gone to the minimum requirement of the three-fourths of a mile fixed route, 
mm-hmm. it's very likely that other people were going to lose their transportation. But I will say that it's very hard to get around the city, even on a bus, because a lot of times trips will take you a long time. We don't have, I think for a very, very short time, we had what I would call really good public transit right before the cuts the first time in 2008. But you can't like go to a street corner here and catch a bus. If you miss a bus, you maybe wait an hour or an hour and a half for the next bus. Mm-hmm. And so the system as a whole has never been good. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing about St. Louis is it's either I don't I don't know if St. Louis has any like typical, like nice average days of weather. It's either 90 degrees and humid or 20 degrees with a wind and snow. There seems to be nothing in between. So waiting an hour, waiting an hour to bus stop doesn't sound very appealing at all. So. So let's talk about what happened this this um, past month, or maybe right at the end of February. Okay, that's they made some changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting story because we went back. We looked at the coalition that I'm working with. We went back. We looked at like board meeting minutes. We looked at the regional transportation disability network minutes, and nothing was ever brought up about these cuts. And all of a sudden, on February 28th, they let a few agencies know about these cuts. And the cuts were going to take place on April 10th. And that was the only thing that anybody knew. And thankfully, um, one of the women who works for a local uh, independent living center here put an article in the paper. They did send out a card like Mm -hmm. at the end of February, that was a print card, mind you, not accessible at all, that Mm -hmm. said they were going to have a public meeting on March 7th. Now, sadly, a lot of people didn't know about this meeting. So one of the women from the Independent Living Center got an article into the Post-Dispatch paper on the Sunday prior. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time a lot of people found out about this meeting, which was very frustrating because our paratransit system has not done next day service in probably two years. And you have to call a minimum of three days out. If it's like a Tuesday, you can call on a Friday. You can go, you can actually go five days on a Friday. Mm-hmm. And so when people would call to try to get a ride to this meeting, a majority of people couldn't make it. I know we called, I called. And when mm-hmm. we called, basically what they said to me was they had no rides available. But even worse than that was we were told that the address on the card was not a valid address and the reservation staff knew absolutely nothing about this public meeting which meant that the people who were able to go to that meeting were the people who mostly could find a way to get their own transportation. And that was the first time there was any kind of real public comment. So you had a public meeting called by the transit agency at an address which didn't exist within the service area, uh, which was advertised only in print. um, And 
on a system where people couldn't normally make next day reservations, even though the law requires them to be able to make next day reservations. Absolutely. And we took three phone calls and calling the ADA office to get an address for where this meeting was going to be, which was not the address that was published. It was an address there, which I will tell you, took you kind of a backward roundabout way to get there, but that's a whole other story. And so this was basically a public meeting with just a little over a month for people to get used to the idea that they weren't going to have transportation. So we went to the meeting and I'd heard about it a little bit ahead. So I was trying to think of things to do. So I did write a statement that I read at that meeting. It was a letter suggesting that they not do the cuts on April 10th, but look at alternatives. And I suggested partnering with um, something like Userve or Rideshare or something to supplement their driver shortage because we knew they had a driver shortage. And basically, you know, I could read it and other people brought up concerns and nothing really happened with that meeting. And we knew it wasn't going to happen at that point. So at that point, um, I started a letter writing campaign. This is just with, it was actually originally with MCB. And then I also had people sign this letter from NFB and from the St. Louis Society for the Blind, from the Sight and Sound Impaired Group. And we ended up sending a letter requesting that they do this. In the meantime, I got involved with a group that actually Paraquad had started a group, the Independent Living Center, to discuss the services cuts. And when I first got in the group, to be honest, we were mainly, they were mainly talking about what are we going to do? How are we going to supplement this? So um, because I tend to be a rebel with a little motivation, I said, we need to do something about this and we need to find a way to stop this. And that's when I reached out to Ron and I said, tell me, what can we do? (laughs) So and, and and so let's so let's dig into that a little bit because because these are things I think that advocates, regardless of the community that you're in, can be thinking about in your own situation when when there's a time for it. And and you know we talk about there when when it's always better to start from a position of cooperation and collaboration. But it sounds like you guys were past that point. It sounds like that you as a community did not feel that you were in a position where you had the time to have or or the relationships to be able to collaborate. There wasn't a spirit of collaboration and there wasn't going to be a change. And so you had to really push to that next level, which is more of a confrontational approach of trying to get the agency to do something that the agency wasn't really prepared to do. So what did you all do? Well, the first thing we did, we did actually try to cooperate with them. Then Mm -hmm. as a coalition, we sent a letter, again, asking them to postpone the cuts for six months while they looked at alternatives. And we received a letter back, which basically told us that they were going to go ahead with the cuts. 
they had to do it. They they knew why they had to do it. And, you know, we we tried. We really did reach out and try to work with them. But the problem was that we couldn't stick with that too long term because we had literally less than a month to try to do something. Mm -hmm. So at that point, we started doing putting some pressure on them. And we started, I did an op-ed article in the Post-Dispatch. Um, we had several interviews, the um, Missouri Independent. I know there was an interview, the St. Louis Business Journal. We had interviews. We contacted several reporters. We honestly didn't get the, the amount of attention for it that we would have liked. But I also understand that particularly in St. Louis, Metro has a lot of influence over the media, a lot more than people realize. So it's kind of hard to find a reporter willing to actually do a story. And so we tried the best we could. At that point, and, you know, we knew that no matter what we did, the cuts were probably going to have to happen. We're going to happen. Because the more we pushed, the more they actually put their foot down and said, no, we're not going to listen to you guys. We're going to do this. Because in all honesty, I think they were desperate. Because I see the change. I saw a change today that kind of really surprised me in that I think they tried it their way. It didn't work. And so now they're a little more open to listening to what other people will do. And one of the things that was really frustrating about these service cuts was they said it would only affect 250 people. And that was the 250 people that lived in the areas that they were cutting. However, our argument with that was it did not just affect 250 people. It affected anybody on the service that might go into those areas that were cut. And one of the other things we did was we actually called and I talked to the ADA person in charge of ADA, trying to get just the boundaries of what was going to be cut. And basically, I was told the only way that they could tell you if your service was cut was to literally put the address you were going into into the system and see that way, which sent alarm bells up to us because our concern was if they don't know the boundaries, then how do we know that the people who were cut off at the service actually were informed? And, you know, did they miss anybody? And that was another interesting thing that we discovered in doing all of this was that Again, the blind and visually impaired people that were cut off the service were again sent print letters, which was another frustrating point. So anyway, we went ahead and from that, we tried the approach with the media. Um, we wrote letters to the editor. Um, a couple of us did the op-ed articles and then we finally decided that we were going to file an FTA complaint. And we filed both an FTA complaint and a DOJ complaint. So that's kind of where we are right now. And unfortunately, on April 10th, they did cut the service. And 
contrary to what they thought, because they kept saying that when they cut the service, the service would actually be better and that this would solve their problems. And I think naively, they truly thought it would. However, I can tell you in all honesty that it has not solved the problem. I know that several people are having trouble now getting reservations. I know that there are some people in some sheltered shops. Um, there was a gentleman on a call this morning that said some of their people are not going to be able to maintain their employment by this summer. So at this point, what we are looking at is actually taking legal action against them. So that's kind of where we are right now. Hey folks, this is Ron. I just, we got kicked off, so I don't even know what I missed. <laughs> I'll catch you up later. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I, was, I was just saying that we we did all the media stuff. We did all the articles. We filed an FTA complaint. We filed a DOJ complaint. And now we're looking into our options, what kind of legal options we have. Wow, it's a good thing you were here. So, so just for uh, you know, for our historical purposes, we've had this call now for about thirteen months, and uh, that's the first time we've gotten the that I've gotten kicked off. So that's great. I wonder where you went. I was like, Ron, don't leave me. Yeah, yeah, no, it's so. So, so we just had a question: What is FTA compliant? And, and um, so, so let me just jump in real quick on that, and and then we'll continue on with the story. So, you know, paratransit, like what St. Louis provides and, and many of the systems around the country, the, the, the FTA is the authority. It's the, it's the federal agency that regulates public transit. And there are a number of requirements in uh, that the FTA, the Federal Transit Administration, has established for paratransit. And agencies who fail to meet those requirements are not in compliance with the ADA. So, um, and I'm going to assume since I, since I decided to just kind of leave the call for a couple of <laughs> minutes, that what you were probably talking about is the denial rate of service, which uh, the, the ADA has some rules about that. And, um, but, you know, by their own admission, St. Louis was violating those rules, which was one of the reasons that they uh, chose to cut the service. Yeah. And that was yeah. an interesting thing. When we first got this coalition together, what really worked for us, it ended up being myself for MCB. It ended up being Paraquad, which is an independent living center, another group called Starkoff Disability Institute, the St. Louis Society for the Blind, National Federation of the Blind. And what was good was we all kind of brought our own expertise into it. Mm. Um, JMO, who works with Paraquad, actually was a former state representative. Mm. So that was huge. I had done a lot of research on FTA regulations. And at first, you know, what people wanted to actually file the complaints again was about the three-fourths of a mile because they had cut the service back. They were exceeding the three-fourths of a mile from fixed route requirement. And right. they cut that back to the three-fourths of a mile fixed route requirement. And mm -hmm. You know, I said, well, we can't really do necessarily use that because that is a minimum requirement. But there's a lot of other things that we can use to file this mm -hmm. FTA complaint. One of them was 
they had a 40% denial rate. And it actually at one point, and you probably don't know this, Ron, but it actually at one point went up to 60%. Mm -hmm. And that was the first thing that we could use. The other thing we used was that when people were calling, they were getting a lot of trip denials. Basically, you would get a one-way trip, but no return. Mm. Or when you would call for a ride and you would say, request a 1030 ride. And they can go one side of that an hour previous or an hour after. And a lot of times, if you would request a 1030 in the morning ride, you would get a 6 a.m. ride. Right. And mm-hmm. So that was another thing that we could use. So we actually went through and looked at what they actually were violating. And those are the things that we actually filed the complaint on. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So so let's let's um, talk. So you you did a lot of work and you, know, you talked about the effort that you made to raise public awareness. You talked about the efforts that you made to you know, kind of work with the agency and make suggestions. You talked about the complaints that you filed with the Department of Justice and also with the Federal Transit Administration. What, what has happened since then? So where, where do things sit now? I mean, obviously the service cuts occurred and so people have been impacted. What is happening now? Okay, well, a couple of things have happened. Some are really good. Um, some we're working on. For one thing, we did contact Missouri Protection and Advocacy to try to get some help through them, which they've never returned our calls. So we actually are now speaking to a private law firm that does some pro bono work to see if they'll work with us. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see what our next steps are there. Um, interestingly enough, after this all happened, <laughs> Metro Transit suddenly decided that they would have a special meeting of the Transportation Disability Network where all of us who were on the coalition were invited, which I found Mm -hmm. really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we went to that first meeting and they wanted to start a working working groups on different areas. Now, um, this morning was the first time we met as one of those working groups. And basically I managed to finagle myself into the one that is um, new service and partnerships, but Mm -hmm. they also formed one that was about technology. They formed one that was about funding and different things like that. So suddenly they seem a little more willing to work with us. Unfortunately, this is like a six-month working group, and we need answers now, not six months from now. So we can't let up the pressure on them right now, because if we do, and I think that's one of the things that we learned, that we knew, that once we started this, until we can fix things, if we let the pressure go, then everything is going to revert back to where Mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that that's a really good segue. So, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like the 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 result, at least right now, of your effort is that you have gained, um, if if not love from the agency, at least respect, and you are now being included in the conversation in in a way that where you're able to uh, 
to at least have a voice in the process, which is an improvement. What, what lessons have you learned from this process? And what I'd like you to think about are lessons that you've learned you know, from your experience, both working with, with the agency, but also working with your community and maybe even with your members as, as you know, MCB members who use the service. What have you learned that, that you think is relevant for, for maybe advocates in other communities um, who might face similar challenges or at least challenges with transportation agencies where they need to, to, you know, to really do some advocacy? What, what have you learned that you can share? Okay. Um, also, Ron, Mark just came in here and told me that we were kicked off of ACB Media. Oh, he was listening and he said it's not coming over. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to podcasting. You know. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to let you know that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Anyway, um, probably the first thing that we I learned, and this is really valuable for everybody, it doesn't work if you do it alone. If it had just been MCB fighting this, I don't think we would have been where we were. And I'm really proud of the fact that we had. MCB, we had the local NFB affiliate, we had two independent living centers that don't necessarily get along with each other working together. And I think that's number one is that there's power in numbers. And sometimes you have to find when you find that common enemy, and you start working together, you can accomplish so much more. And my personal hope is that there are other issues we can all work on together because yeah, there's a yeah. lot of things that touch everybody. The other thing I learned is it's a lot of work. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. I was telling Ron that I have spent at least two hours a day on this. And some days I've spent four hours just doing research, talking to people, answering phones, talking to reporters. You know, it's not, it's not easy. And I'm going to be honest, it's kind of hard to get people to speak up, especially in our community, because our particular paratransit system has does have a history of retaliation. And so getting people to actually speak up can be really difficult. I am in a good situation right now because I'm not dependent on them. So there's very little they can do to me, which gives me a voice for the people that don't feel that they have a voice. Because I honestly don't use our paratransit system that much because it doesn't work well. And so, Robin, you said a couple of things that I want to go back to that I thought were really interesting. And one thing that you said was about the power, you know, you recognize the power of numbers. And I want to just probe into that a little bit. You, You talked about bringing these groups together. And you said something earlier that struck me. The different groups really brought different skill sets and different assets to the table. You had one person who was a former state state representative. Uh, you have a group uh, that was in the independent living community that that maybe had different skills than than Missouri Council of the Blind. Could you just talk about the fact that that, that part of being in a village is that there were different people. You know, you had different people with different skills. Absolutely. And that was huge. And honestly, Paraquad, which is the big independent living center here, actually has 
in some ways more power than MSCB has. It's more out there. They do a lot more out in the community. Um, and so they're they're bigger, they're more well known. And so that was huge. And then, mm-hmm. you know, so between them and Starcloth, that those were two well-known agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, then bringing in MCB, bringing in NFB, bringing in um, the other groups, because on our complaint to the um, DOJ, we even have members of the United Church of Christ. Um, I can't remember all the others, but there were more people that signed on to that actual complaint than what we started mm-hmm. with. Um, ARC, um, uh, Developmental Disabled Association, Easter Seals. So, mm-hmm. you know, and all of these names that are already out there in the media that do have a big presence, that really helps. That helps tremendously. Mm-hmm. Because if it had just been us, I don't think any of this would have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just had so much more to reach back. The other thing that I thought you said that was interesting, you referred to a common enemy. And I want to dig into that because, you know, from my perspective, and I think, yeah, I'd be curious for your reaction. I I, I don't think most people, and I would assume that this is also true in St. Louis, that people who work at agencies, I, I don't typically think of them as enemies, but I think what, what I hear was a system that was broken and you have people who work at that system who, who probably actually want to do a good job, but the system itself is just not functioning right. Could you just kind of comment on where, how you think, I'm just, I'm sorry, there was a chat going in my ear. <laughs> That's um, okay. <laughs> is there, you know, where are you thinking about, it, how, you know, the, the relationships obviously got challenged here. And, you know, right now the agency is starting to include you in some conversations that you didn't feel like you were included in before. Where do do you go from here to try to rebuild that relationship and build it back to constructive? Or do you think it's too early to have that conversation? I think it's beginning. I don't know that it's quite to the point where we can have that conversation yet. I think we're in a unique situation and that I do think there are people in our transit company that do care. I also think that there, our transit company has been mismanaged for years. And one of the mm. things happened, especially with ADA and quite honestly, the ADA coordinator is probably a little too close to this whole issue because when things were suggested that might actually affect one group of people a little differently than another, the walls just went up and there was no compromise because it was a situation where this particular person has someone who is sometimes in a wheelchair. And one of the things was suggested was that, you know, we, they could use a service like a ride share service to, because they were so short, on drivers that could pick up people that didn't necessarily need the lift, but could still get a ride. And that would like 
that would actually relieve some of their pressure. But immediately this person focused on, well, that wouldn't be fair because it wouldn't be for everybody. And then the ears just closed. Mm -hmm. And I understand it, but I think that's kind of a dangerous thing because sometimes if you're too close to a situation, and I know this is true for me, it's true for everybody. If you're too close to a situation, sometimes you put blinders on without even realizing it. Right, right, right. So, but I think we're starting to see a change in them. I think that... Unfortunately, because of the way it had to be done and because it was done so quickly, Mm. I think they dug their heels in and they were just not ready to listen. And I think it's going to take a little bit of time. But I see just from our meeting that I know I told you about this morning, I see my first glimmer of hope. Well, let's hope that's the case, um, because I think, you know, everybody would like to see you know, as someone, um, and I've shared, you know, my own story, you know, I've been in the industry for a long time. And I know a lot of people who work in the industry. And, and I think, I I truly think that most people in the industry want to do the right thing. I also think that, you know, we, the the paratransit model, as it's created in federal law, uh, is 35 years old, and technology has changed, people's needs have changed. Our communities have changed. Transportation itself has changed, and it, and w- what what hasn't changed is the way that we think about what the law tells us that we should do. And I think there's new ways to look at it. So, and I think it's just a matter of time. But it is going to take the kind of advocacy that you and your community have done um, on a on a continuing basis. And that was the other thing that I wanted to point out. You talked about it taking work. And one of the things you said that I thought was interesting was you realized that once you started, you had to finish the job. Um, and that that kind of tenacity is hard to maintain because this took a lot of energy. You talk about two to four hours a day of, of work on this over a, a fairly extended period of time. And um, so I just want to acknowledge the effort that you and MCB and some of the other organizations put into this effort. And even though the results are delayed, it sounds like they're coming, at least they're starting to come. And, um, and I think that that, so this story may have a happy ending and we may have to have you back in six months to a year to see how it turned out. Um, but in I the meantime, we're gonna, yeah, I do too. I do too. Um, we're going to open this up now. And so let's hope all of our technology gremlins have gone off to sleep uh, and we can continue on with this call. And uh, what I'd like to do is invite people now to raise their hands and, um, and I want to address a question in the chat, but I want to go ahead and let people raise their hands and, uh, and then Sheila will call on uh, you and, uh, or Herbie out in Clubhouse and you can share. And what I'd like to encourage people to do is to share uh, the, your, your first, you know, well, we'll know your first name because Sheila will call on you. Um, but then once you do that, if you share the city and state that you're in and make your comment or question quickly, um, and then we'll just go for as long as, as we have questions or we have time. And um, yeah, either Robin can take them or I can take them, depending on what they are. Before we take the first question, uh, Mary had asked in the chat about uh, certain sections of the law that, that you want to look at uh, to, to really dig into some of these regulations. And what I would look at, 
And we will, in the show notes that we send out a few days after when we send out the podcast link, um, we will share a reference to a document called the 2015 ADA Circular, which was an update to all of the regulatory guidance provided by the Federal Transit Administration about eight years ago. They really, they didn't change any rules, but they took the rules that were, that existed at that time and they haven't changed since then. And they, they dug in and basically said, here's what this means. Um, and it really covers all aspects of public transportation from new facilities to paratransit uh, to uh, building trains. I mean, the, the whole nine yards. And it's long. It's about 300 pages. So I'm, so I'm not suggesting you read all of it. But it's, it's a very nicely um, done document that breaks down the transit agency's requirements by chapters. So you can find the chapter you want to check out. Uh, it gives you the requirements. It gives you some recommended uh, best practices uh, that, that agencies have implemented to meet those requirements. Uh, and it gives you some other things to consider. Um, and it's written for the agencies. So it's going to read with a little bit of jargon. It's a little, it's not what I would call exciting reading, uh, unless you're a transit nerd, and then it's really super exciting. Uh, everybody else, get coffee and check it out. It's worth the read. And we'll put, the, we'll put that link in the show notes. Um, and one of the things we do at Accessible Avenue is if you have those kinds of questions, we can help you dig into that. So, so let's go ahead and open it up. Sheila, um, do we have anybody with hands raised? You do. Marie, you may unmute. And so Marie, city and state, and then make your comment or question. Oh, thank you, Ron and Robin. This is Marie Terry from Claremont, Florida. I want to say thank you. This conversation is so important. Um, I just have a comment. Bill Herndon says hello to you, Ron. Um, <laughs> okay. And um, he's hoping we'll get together soon. Um, I want to share with Robin, um, as a healthcare provider for 30 years, how I was able to achieve to get a new fixed route bus in Claremont, which is a very rural area. Um, I was a non, I've only been a non-driver for five years. I suddenly lost my eyesight. But healthcare hospitals are going to work with you and partner with you because as a healthcare provider, I, I would volunteer at the clinics and we would get people not showing up to their free clinic where we give them medicine and you know all this great stuff and inhalers. And we would be like, I said, Let, allow me to do the drill down to find out why these patients are not coming for free healthcare and free medication. And it all came down to transportation. So mm. it clicked in my mind, we need to stop saying we're blind, you know, and that we need help, you know, that we're in a wheelchair. We're non-drivers. Because like what Robin said earlier, for us to foster our voices for amplification, if you say you're a non-driver, there's many reasons why you become a non-driver. And yep. there's this thing that goes on with our culture, our society, where they think blindness is contagious. But becoming mm -hmm. a non-driver, I guess it's a little bit more understanding. Um, I was successful in getting a new bus route, um, fixed route bus route. It took me three years. Um, thank you, mm -hmm. COVID. Um, because sometimes it's not the people like I like what you said, Ron, about the agencies. They're not really out to get us or be our enemy. It's the process is broken. 
And you just have to take down the root analysis of why, why is it broken down? Is it funding or is it someone that's not educated? So I went to my metropolitan meeting um, and I sat there and I listened and I looked who was sitting around the table that was able to make decisions. And I saw Department of Children's Services. I saw, you know, all these different things and they were talking about it. And I said, well, there's funding for the Department of Children's, correct? I said, did you guys know that these two children's hospitals are opening up clinics in Claremont, Florida, and that there's no connection from Leesburg to Claremont for a fixed route bus where the kids can't get to their doctor's appointment? And they all went, the commissioner came up to me afterwards and said, thank you so yep. much because now we have another bank account <laughs> yeah, to be that's able right. yep. To collaborate the funding to be able to. Now, it's been three years. We've had COVID, um, but we have one of the legs started and we are waiting for another grant to work. Now, the share ride things, what I found out why those are not successful in Florida is, especially in Lake County, is in order for the grant process. Now, I don't think it's a state or it's federal, but you have to be drug tested. Now, here's a scary thought. Your Uber and your Lyft drivers, there's no um, drug testing for them. Yep. So so, so I want to just um, thank you for that comment. I really appreciate it. One of the things that I heard Marie say, and then we'll go to our next is, is that, you know, we, and, and, and I think there's room for both, but I do think the value of Marie's Comet is, is, is two things. One is if we can c communicate to people about things that people understand. And a lot of people in the general public don't understand disability, but they do understand non-driving. Um, they do understand not being able to get in the car. And you know, one of the analogies that, that we've used when we talk to transit agency people who, who typically are not paratransit customers, not yet, um, is we say, imagine closing the road that the only road that comes to your house and you no longer get to leave your house because the road got closed and bulldozed. And, and you know, how long would you need to, to, to alter your life to solve for that problem? How long would it take you to put your house on the market and sell it and find a new house and move? And how long would it take you to save the money to do all of that? Because that's exactly when you cut a paratransit route and somebody is out in the area that loses that service, those are the circumstances that they are going to live under. And when we start to talk in terms of taking someone's car away um, you know, in a car society like ours, that, that actually is a message that resonates. And so I, so I definitely appreciate that message. Um, and, uh, yeah, I love the creativity. So next, uh, Sheila, who's uh, next? Um, Ron, before you go on, I just want to yep. say one, one quick thing. And that is an interesting thing, too, because one of the things that I know you and I talked about, and this is one of the things that we've kind of fought with Metro, is that, unfortunately, there are a lot of people, and I saw this in our meeting this morning, that mm -hmm. seem to think that disabled people work at agencies or mm, it's mm. always. And so that's even something that you have to, I've made an effort to explain this to them that, 
yes, you do have your agencies, you do have your sheltered workshops, you do have your right. lighthouses, but there are a majority of people out there living other normal lives, doing other things. And that is right. a big thing that you have to overcome. And yes. we were really lucky with Metro because one thing we did learn through the through one of the reporters is that financially they are very sound right now. So it's more of a issue of staffing than anything. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very good point. Uh, and that's an excellent point. Um, if you are able to put a human face on a story, um, especially if you think about boards, if you're talking to a board of elected officials and most of the people who run transit agencies are either elected or appointed and they are mostly uh, city leaders. They could be city council members, mayors, city managers, uh, county, uh, county commissioners, people like that. A lot of them don't have much background with transit and none with disability. Um, that, yeah, they're basically volunteering to serve on a board. But what they do have experience with is being parents of running a small business, of going to the store at the last minute because their kid forgot that they had a project due and they need to go to the Walmart to buy crafts. So it, when you can talk in terms of the impacts of these cuts, as opposed to just, you know, it's, it's, I mean, yes, you start with what the law says, but then you talk about the reality of what the, why that matters and how that affects life. It, it puts a human face on the story that also works uh, particularly well with media because again, these are not people who are generally uh, super savvy about disability issues or the ADA, but they do understand just the challenges of, of just living. So uh, Sheila, who's next? Sue Allen. Okay, Sue Allen, and then we'll, we'll see if we have any about Clubhouse. So and you do, ahead, but okay. yeah. Awesome, Sue Ellen? Hey, Ron, this is Sue Ellen in Louisville. Mm -hmm. And I totally get what Robin is saying about once you get started, you got to keep that pressure on because what they're hoping for, what they're waiting for, what they're praying for is that um, you'll get tired of the fight and the work and you'll just go away so they can do what they feel they need to do. Um, but what I wonder also is um, uh, what I found, I, what I would think would have to be a really good tool in these types of things is social media, you know, to get people to share their stories, to put out there publicly how this is going to impact them, um, to use it to get uh, to get the word out about the meetings when they're going to happen. I know when things went sideways here in Louisville, we put up a TARC 3 page and they used that when we were when there were protests, it was up there um, when they mm. were going to be hearings. It was up there um, when a reporter was willing to talk to people. That information was up there. Yeah, and I just want to acknowledge you, Sue Ellen and Robin, if you want to comment further. But I, do, I want to acknowledge Sue Ellen about your, you know, the TARC 3 Facebook page that went up a few years ago. Um, was one of the best organized efforts I've ever seen a community make that cost basically nothing. Um, and what that did is it did a couple of things. One, it, it encouraged because it's social media, people came started coming out of the woodworks and sharing their stories. Um, that get, that made it super easy actually for the media in Louisville to find people to talk to because all they had to do was was read the thread. Um, it, it was really 
Uh, it also became a very easy place to archive stories so that if there was a need to share those with other parties like regulators, they're all in one place. Uh, it was a very, very well done uh, and effective uh, method. And I just want to acknowledge you guys in Louisville for, for putting that together. It was, uh, it was pretty compelling. Robin, did you want to add anything? I was just going to say, we actually tried to use social media somewhat, but I will say we weren't as good as Louisville, obviously. And I think that, honestly, that's probably the one thing we didn't really think about as much as we should have. We tried to share our articles on social media. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a little difficult here because the culture of fear here of our paratransit service, because of past issues with retaliation is so strong that mm. even to get people to talk to reporters for us was very difficult because a lot of people, basically the people who would do it were the ones who were already losing their service and had nothing to lose. Mm. And when you have that culture to overcome, that makes it even harder. And we've tried to tell people that you know, we are behind you. We will stand behind you. You know, something happens. We're here for you, you know, but that can be a tricky culture to overcome. Yep. Yep. Uh, next, uh, next comment okay. or question. Um, you yeah. are like two minutes after the top of the hour and Herbie from Clubhouse. Jim East, you may unmute. Thank you, everyone. I will be very succinct. I have both a question and a comment. The first comment is that I um, am a retired VR counselor for blind services here in Florida. I live in Orlando, Florida currently, but I mm -hmm. was living in Daytona Beach, Florida, which is sort of the blind mecca of Florida when, when I was working competitively. Um, anyway, uh, my, my comment is first that uh, some of you may represent agencies or organizations, and you may or may not know, and from what I have been told, I haven't totally deciphered all of the legislation, but from what I have read, that the organizations that provide transportation uh, might be required, depending on your state, and someone else who's more legal-minded than me, because I'm a rehab mental health guy, uh, may be able to spit this out better than me, but basically... I've served on advisory boards, both at county and at organizational levels. And so I encourage you to get a seat on a board, whether it be your municipal board, your county board, your city board, or if the organization like we have MV Transportation is the big wheel here. Uh, I was on their uh, private, their uh, advisory council as well. Mm -hmm. So. If you can get the agencies to have to take their seat, I've been trying to get the CIO in Gainesville, where I was from, to take their seat. Uh, you know, anyway. So that's the comment. My question is: is I was told back in grad school when I learned all this stuff and took my CRC board that had all this stuff on as a national board um, that there were penalties for extreme lateness. And I have observed both in Alachua County, which is the Gainesville area, as well as here in Orlando, Orange County, extreme uh, lateness, and it's been mm -hmm. handled very lackadaisically. I heard there's supposed to be like fines and all kinds of things. 
can someone explain to me yep. how that can be implemented or go? And I'm, I'm done yep. speaking. Thank you for having this room tonight. Yeah, let me let me just address the, the legal question first. Um, and then I'd like to maybe toss the, the organizational question to Robin, because you did work with a lot of organizations. Um, two things. One, Florida does have some state law that's a little bit different than the rest of the country. Uh, Florida has what's called the Transportation Disadvantage Commission, and it's, it's tied up in a state law called Chapter 427, and it requires all 68 of, of Florida's counties to establish um, a, 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 a Transportation Disadvantaged Local Coordinating Board. Which is, which is basically a board of citizens and representatives of agencies who advise um, a, a body which is also required to be created called the coordinated uh, the uh, uh, community transportation coordinator, which is basically, it can be a, an agency or a transit authority or a nonprofit or, or somebody else who's supposed to coordinate transportation within the county. Um, and counties can combine their 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 services, but at the end of the day, there's a, there's a, a service, there's a company, an agency or a company that's supposed to coordinate service at the, at the local level. And there's a local coordinating board, which is basically an advisory committee. They are, they are mandated by statute. And so Florida has a really good structure. Now it doesn't always work because the, the, the law is only as good as the funding and it's only as good as the enforcement. So you do have a situation where um, you have a structure that's good, but, but sometimes the execution isn't as good as it could be. Um, there are no fines in the ADA. So in most parts of the country, Florida may have something different in state law. I'm not super familiar with the details of Florida state law, but I don't, I don't know of any fines. I do know that in the ADA, there are none. There are requirements in the ADA um, around things like uh, trip denials that you're not allowed to have them, uh, when trips are allowed to be offered, about how long a trip can take. There are some standards within the ADA. The enforcement mechanisms in the ADA are really pretty, um, they're pretty minimal. Uh, basically, transit authorities are on the honor system to do the right thing. They are subject to, uh, to a, a process of reviews uh, that happen every three years by the federal government. And there are other reviews which can be done at the federal government's option, but those have not been taking place during the pandemic and they have not yet resumed. So, so enforcement has been a little bit more challenging. The other thing that's happened is that there is a, a national driver shortage. I mean, in every agency virtually in the country, there is a driver shortage. And I believe that enforcement has been lax because the, the Federal Transit Administration knows that there's a driver shortage. And I think they've been patient with the industry to try to solve that shortage. What I would say as advocates is those are all true, true statements. And maybe that encourages us to try to work with our local agency a little bit you know, harder. But at the end of the day, we as advocates need to advocate for the for what the law requires and what we need and we've got to trust that the industry is responsible to figure out the driver shortage there are solutions for some of these challenges they're not easy they may not be free 
But as advocates, I think it's our job to, to really continue to speak to our needs and to what the law requires. Um, and, and at some point when that's not happening, then it's our responsibility to involve the people who regulate the industry to try to get them to help us. And I think that's really what happened in St. Louis. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Another thing when all of this started, there used to be a, um, meeting that was with Metro with different agencies. It was the MAG meeting. It was Metro access something. Mm -hmm. And different agencies would go, representatives from the White House to the blind, representative from Easter Seals, et cetera. And over time, people stopped going. Mm. And so this particular group kind of disintegrated. Then they divided it into two groups. One was the Regional Transportation Disability Network, and the other Mm -hmm. was the ADA Customer Advisory Group. And sad to say that, and this was partly Metro's fault too, and it's something that I brought up in our meet, the meeting this morning, is that it's so loosely formed that there aren't really a lot of requirements to be in either one of those meetings. And so people come and go. So I would say probably the lesson in that is try to get onto one of these meetings into one and make sure people show up because that's when you start your advocacy. Because Mm -hmm. most of us who were in this coalition were not in that group until we actually started doing all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this goes back to a point Sue Ellen made and that you made earlier, which is when you start this fight, you've got to stay in it because if, if you don't, it, it kind of, dies. It, it doesn't, it, it's not sustained and things, it's hard to sustain positive change. And if so. you have a voice, you've got to use it and you've got mm-hmm. to make sure if the person who represents your agency or whatever, or your group or whatever doesn't show up, then you've got to get somebody that will. Yep. Yeah. So if you're in a local chapter and the relevance here is if, let's say you're in a local chapter and you're your transit agency has an advisory board and you have a member of your chapter who attends those meetings. If they stop attending, then you as an organization need to either hold that person responsible to attend or get somebody else who will attend because it doesn't do any good to be a representative if your representative doesn't show up. So next comment or next, uh, next speaker. Starry. Starry, go ahead and unmute. Hi, uh, my name is Tariq Walton, live in St. Louis, Missouri. Ah. <laughs> what I wanted to say first was I am one of the people who struggled when they did transit cuts before the most recent transit cuts. Because I lived in South County, St. Louis, and we had just one bus route. And during the COVID period they cut that bus route so I was living with my mother who at the time could not walk as well and uh, we had no way to go anywhere because we didn't have a vehicle and there was no transit so that was rough and that's why I started getting into transit and Mm -hmm. dealing with the organizations here in St. Louis but what I wanted to ask was what did I want to ask 
I don't remember. It took so long. <laughs> <Don't even remember. laughs> well, it sounds like you guys could have coffee and you can remember it and you guys could have a, have a good conversation. Um, so I was going to say, Tari, you're more than welcome to join the fight. <laughs> well, actually, I did email you when you kicked out that email that you were starting up a transit group. But okay. I never received response back from you. Okay, well, um, I'll tell you what. I probably, are you a member of MCB? I am. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think how I can do it. I'm actually, if you're on any of the listservs or Ron can get you my information. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's, yeah, let's take this offline and yeah. we will connect the two of you and get you guys um, all hooked up. That's what I was going to um, say, Ron. Can you get yep. her my information and we'll get hooked up? Yep. Sounds good. Yeah, we'll, we'll make that happen. Thank you. All right. Boy, we're getting work done right now. Look at that. So, uh, Sheila, who's next? Area code 305 ending in 713. Please identify yourself. Oh, yes. Um, yes, my name is Diana Oliveira. And yes, my number is from Miami. Um, but I am now currently living in Falls Church, Virginia. Okay. And yeah, so, but my comment is well, I, I really appreciate this call. Is the first time I joined it, um, and uh, I moved from Miami to Salt Church about two and a half years ago mm -hmm. um, for several reasons. But um, uh, basically, uh, during the time I lived in Miami was like over thirty years, uh, and when I started using the, the past transit services over there. It was uh, literally a nightmare. Um, mm. It was a miss, uh, a, a hit and miss. Uh, it was like we never knew how many hours we we're gonna be um, in a in a van or a car. Right. It was just a nightmare. Um, in Miami, they have three uh, besides the STS. They have three other uh, third party um, agencies yeah. or just, yeah, they do that. So. Um, it was well, when I moved here. Um, I, it was like a dream come true because the services here with Wamada they 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 function so perfectly. And yeah. more recently, um, if you don't need a van with a lift, which sometimes I do not, most of the times I do not. Um, they if they don't have uh, enough transportation from Metro, uh, they will send you a taxi. Mm -hmm. uh, and more recently, they um, they are sending Uber, uh, Uber Link, mm -hmm. and um, it, you know they send that, and I think that's 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 a solution that is um, you know it, it, it didn't happen before when I first moved here during the pandemic, yep. but yep. Uh, it, it's working now and it's it's really very good because you can click that link when you are ready to go, um, and uh, it's the same cost of the the Wamada. I mean the ride that would be with the metro vehicle. Excellent. So I just wanted to point that out because it's uh, oh my god this this is this should be a model here. It works really good and it's basically for Maryland, for DC, and for Northern Virginia. So we have a, a pretty big area that is covered here by this service. Yeah. Diana, so that sounds great, to... and yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think you know that points to something that I think Robin alluded to, and we've certainly talked about on this call before, which is that there are other approaches which other agencies are taking to try to manage the challenges that 
that are that are real challenges. I mean, staffing is a real challenge in many places, and there are some solutions that are being developed and put into place in some parts of the country. But some agencies are dragging their feet a little bit, and so thank you for giving that example, uh, Sheila. Oh, who's you're welcome? Yep. Yeah. All right, area code 775, Indian 653. Sounds like we got Reno in the house. Please unmute and tell us who you are. Hi, good evening from Reno, Nevada. This is Dora. <laughs> hey, um, Dora. Thank you for the, hi, thank you so much. I really appreciate this, um, this Zoom uh, meeting. So um, we... Our, our problem here, uh, they, we, we got together with the union that supports paratransit drivers. So they got more drivers because they got a raise, uh, like $17 up from $8 an hour. Mm. So they got more drivers. But now what the agency is doing is that they're limiting the driver's hours. So it's 6 to 6. And anything before 6 a.m. or after 6 a.m. is an Uber or a taxi. And sometimes it is a hit and miss because they don't come to your door and get you. I have a service dog and they refuse to take my dog. Um, mm. My dog will sit on the floorboard and they don't understand, you know, um, that they think he's going to sit yeah. on the, on the, on the seat and tear the, the whole place. So right. we, um, I was listening to Robin and thank you, Robin. You're like an angel in disguise. <laughs> I, I was wondering, um, I, I will look forward to your note, um, but isn't there like a law if, if the fixed routes are running, then the big bus are, or the shuttle access bus are supposed to be functioning as well? Because yeah, six, our, our first bus starts at 5 a.m., but they still send Uber, and I'm really scared yeah. of driving Uber because I can't see at all. So, yeah, thank let me, you so uh, much, Ron. Yeah, let me answer the legal question. And by the way, I have not heard – I've heard the term devil used for Robin, Um but now you're an angel, Robin. So you're moving up. Yeah, I'm gonna remember that. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, uh, the legal requirement is for the agency to provide paratransit, and agencies are able to use third parties, including taxis and services. Okay. Now, Uber and Lyft is a little bit different because the those the providers that agencies use to do paratransit have to meet paratransit requirements. And that's a little bit mm -hmm. detailed for this conversation, but mm -hmm. here's what I would say. If you have a denial of service because of a, an illegal reason, and it is illegal mm -hmm. for an Uber driver or a Lyft driver or a taxi driver or any driver, mm -hmm to deny you service because you have a service animal. If that happens, and I would not even say if, I'd say when that happens, um, I hope that you're reporting it directly to the transit agency as a complaint. And if the transit agency is not doing something about it, then you have grounds to file a federal complaint with the Department of Transportation and or the Department of Justice, because they are breaking okay. federal law. So okay. it, I think they are allowed to use these other providers, but they have to, they can't break the law. And when they do, you've got to call them out because the transit agency may not be aware of it unless you tell them. 
So that would be my advice. Yeah, I, I did. I did. And they say, mm-hmm. well, if it happens again, like, what? I was just stranded at 5 a.m. Yeah. and it was snowing. Agreed. Agreed. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So if it happens more than once or twice, then I think at that point you, you need to escalate it and make it a federal case. <laughs> Literally. Thank you so much. Uh, you guys are the best. Thanks. Okay. Um, next. Jewel. Yes. Hi. My name is Jewel. I live in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And um, my question is about um, hours of operation that have been lim- been lowered um, due to the pandemic and have not come back. And I've asked if they have said they're not coming back. So that includes um, any service be- that is not between the hours of 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. And it has to be on the weekday. So we have no service after 6 p.m. during the week and no service on the weekend at all. So Like if I wanted to go to university and I wanted to take a Saturday class, can't do it. No transportation. So I was wondering, um, they did have that before the pandemic and that was cut during the pandemic and has not returned. And they're saying there's no um, expectation of it returning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, Jewel, I know you reached out to us and, and um, you know, I'm sorry that uh, we haven't connected yet, but what I will tell, what I will tell you is what they are doing is completely legal. Yes. um, And what, and what I would suggest, mm. this is when communities have to get involved. And this is why the work that Robin has done with MCB and Paraquat and some of the others, because it, you know, an agency that is facing a budget challenge or a staffing mm-hmm. challenge or political, I mean, it could be anything, they're not going to probably make a big change for one person. It takes a lot of grassroots advocacy to get an agency to do something that, that they're not currently doing to, I mean, right. you're, and, you know, it's a tough, tough, tough uphill battle. I'll um, add the further detail that that was a cut to the bus service and thus right. the paratransit. So it's completely yep. legal to cut the paratransit because the bus is at the same level. Yes. That's um, right. And I was wondering yeah. how do we get that started to really like advocate for that to come back, not just for, disabled people, but for all people that are not using bus services, like students, we have college students. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think Robin, do you want to comment about some of the work you did? I started to say, well, one of the things is get other agencies, other groups involved, but now we have in one area of St. Louis, and this goes back to our 2008 situation, Basically, out in Chesterfield, which is a like far west suburb, it ended up the way they got the bus service back was that the local businesses actually advocated to get the service back. So Mm. that was a huge thing. And Mm. the way we actually got a bus stop that would put us back in a three fourths of a mile was that. We are in what, like we're outside, there's a highway that kind of goes around St. Louis called 270, and we are outside the 270 loop, and they were going to cut all service outside that loop. Well, there are hospitals out here, west of where I am, and so Mm -hmm. those hospital employees needed a bus that at least went past the highway, Mm -hmm. and so the hospital employees out here actually... Bought and got 
the bus stop reinstated on the west side of 270. And then over time, the bus service kind of went back in. And then now we're seeing the opposite where the service is being cut again. But I will tell you that the more people and the more organizations, and I know for the Chesterfield Valley area, that was huge for them to get the businesses to speak up. So um, with that idea in mind, I had an idea because this is um, this area, especially where I am, I've got, there's a university three miles away from me, mm. uh, West Kentucky University, Western Kentucky University, where a good majority of the freshmen and sophomore are non-drivers. It's a lot cheaper for them to not drive. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think then getting them involved and getting the businesses involved for like nightclubs, uh, bars and restaurants and stuff, you know, that would cater to students? Do you think that would help a lot? I, I think the university, yeah, the university. <laughs> I was going to say, here's my theory, and this is what I have learned. It never hurts to ask. What's the worst mm-hmm. they can do is tell you no. Because yep. Friday service and weekend service, I think, would benefit those students quite a yep. bit. They'd be getting yep. out in town a lot more. Okay. We have time That's for one more idea. question. Yeah. Yep. One more question, then we'll probably have to wrap it up. Sheila? I was, I was just going to tell you it was 25 after. <laughs> um, 415, area code 415 ending in 202. You may unmute. Tell us who you are, please. Area code 415 ending in 202. Hi, this is Lisa Irving and Peter Pardini. We live outside of San Francisco. Um, our question has to do with, it's kind of specific to California, but it's the Brown Act. And um, as of April, if you're going to vote, you're supposed to be in person. This particularly hurts non-drivers who happen to be disabled. Um, This particularly hurts um, those of us on the paratransit coordinating council. Is it legal? Um, Are there any workarounds? Are there any way to request accommodations because it hurts those of us um, dependent on paratransit and currently paratransit where I live is routinely far outside the window. It's a, there's, yeah, there's nothing legal in terms of transit requirements. I think it's a political question um, and it's an interesting one. I mean, if it were me, I'd probably contact my legislature and I'd say, you know, you guys did this thing and it was bad and, and, and I'm affected by it and here's how. And I want to know how you want me to vote. And I think I would probably, you know, try to focus on it from a, you have disenfranchised me by virtue of this decision and I expect you to help me figure out how to solve it. And I would probably get social media. I'd probably play this more as a political uh, angle and really focus on it from that direction with social media, with with regular media uh, and uh, with legislators who may be opposed that. I I mean, I don't know enough about it to be intelligent, but that's my gut. Um, And then Ron, along along those Mm -hmm. lines, what what are the rights of paratransit riders when paratransit is habitually outside the window? 
Uh, if there's no a, financial recourse, what what are our yeah. rights? Th- those are federal. Yeah, I mean, those are. Thank you. And I'll just answer this, and we we'll have to yeah wrap up. But uh, those are federal rules. Uh, the federal government does look at uh, a what's called pattern of pattern and practice. So if an agency is routinely late, uh, that is something that can trigger uh, an ADA compliance problem in, uh, in terms of on-time performance and trip denials. So those are things that do get looked at, but you've got to get the federal government through probably through federal complaints, uh, to, to focus in on an agency and, and come in and take a look at the data. Uh, but, but is what they're going to look for is a, that would be FTA. Yeah. And what they're going to look for is a pattern, uh, patterns in the data. So, it's important for people, by the way, this is why it's important for folks to register those comments. When your service is routinely poor, um, it's important for you to share that with your transit agency, not with your provider. If you have a, because a lot of providers are private companies um, and you can report it to them so they can be aware of it, but you need to report it to the agency because agencies document complaints. And usually providers aren't the ones who are responsible for actually documenting complaints. And if it's not written down, it didn't happen. So the we ADA have to wrap. complaint form is not accessible. Uh, okay. Well, I, 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 there is an accessible complaint form on the uh, DOT's website. So I will, we will include that in the show notes. Um, we have to wrap it up there. Uh, I would like to thank you, Robin, for, you know, coming on and kind of walking through this really difficult story um, and really giving us a lot of good, good things to think about. Um, I wish you all the best in St. Louis with all the work that you've done. Uh, I have a feeling that this will have a happy ending at some point. Um, oh, and from your math to God's ears. And well, I was, I was going to say one thing. That uh-huh. is one thing that we did learn to document everything. And we are right now keeping every denial that we can get we are keeping Mm. records we are keeping records of every email we sent of every person we spoke to and that's a big thing too (laughs) great and on that we'll have to leave it because um we are at time thank you again next month's guest is to be announced and um thank you sheila thank you herbie thank you everybody who tuned in on clubhouse on acb media and in zoom We will be back next month with another issue of Untangling Transportation. Thanks, Ron.